Association of Crime and Intelligence Analysts, Africa Series Podcast Number 3, A Little Chat. Somewhere in the ether of cyberspace, there lies a tweet. Third call this week from a football fan, saying that he'd been contacted by the police to go into the police station for just a chat under caution. Here's the thing, it's never just a chat. You can't just go to see what the police have to say. It's a police interview. The suspect's right to silence and not to self-incriminate are generally recognised international legal standards. Additionally, in common law legal systems, there is generally no legal obligation upon anyone, including a suspect, to assist the police by responding to questions or accompanying them anywhere. Not all cases provide crime scenes from which relevant, admissible, sufficient and irrefutable evidence can be gathered against the suspect. On many occasions, such real evidence is greatly lacking. In other instances, even if such evidence is abundantly available, law enforcement in that particular jurisdiction might lack the expertise or resources to optimally exploit it or may do so whilst inadvertently contaminating it or corrupting. Either way, in such instances, other forms of evidence, such as witness testimony or expert evidence, may be relied on, but these two are challengeable for reliability. In all of this though, information gathered from victims, witnesses and suspects remains vital for the successful resolution of criminal investigations. Interviews are often the only source of information regarding the event in question, and even if physical evidence does exist, questioning those involved helps provide context and explain how the available evidence fits into the overall event. The ability of investigators to generate the maximal amount of current information from interviewees is therefore a vital skill. Although not entirely devoid of merit, the tri-phase confession-seeking read technique has been criticized for neither having a sound scientific basis in lie detection nor the backing of empirical findings to support it. It also seems to result in a significant number of confessions later deemed false, whilst not also lending itself well for use with victims or witnesses. This is unlike the five-stage information-gathering-orientated peace model, favoured by United Kingdom police forces, which has found favour when used with all three groups. Peace here stands for preparation and planning, engage and explain, count, closure, and evaluate. And in this model, the interviewee is given latitude to tell their account freely before being confronted with inconsistencies and contradictions between that and other accounts or evidence. Peace is comprised of two subgroups, cognitive interviewing and conversation management. Both of these emphasize respectful treatment of interviewees. However, Criticism still exists, key amongst that being that interviewers are required very early on to differentiate whom amongst the interviewees are victims, witnesses or suspects, and tailor their questioning and approach accordingly. This at times may be too premature, as can be seen in the United Kingdom cases involving Dwayne Brooks and Ian Huntley, and the American case involving Rafiq Hosni. Interview characterization informs interview approach, which in turn 
determines the nature of any statement recorded, which in of itself can lead to evidential bias. Based on rapport building and sound intelligence gathering and exploitation, peace is considered better than read. Because of this, one might best look to yesteryear and examine two earlier examples of such interviewing, the Schaaf technique and that described in Major Sherwood F. Moran's 1943 United States Marine Corps memo, Suggestions for Japanese Interpreters Based on Work in the Field. When it comes to intelligence and law enforcement interviewing or interrogation, maybe these other techniques need to be repurposed and given greater prominence. This podcast promotes such techniques as possible answers to interviewing to gain intelligence, set investigative direction, and gather evidence from victims, witnesses, and suspects alike. This podcast explains aspects of the shaft technique and Moran's approach suitable for use with victims, witnesses, and suspects. Positive elements within Schaff and Moran's approach, more advantageous than other evidence-gathering techniques, their place within the criminal and intelligence analysis toolset, and within which context or framework they could be adapted within cash-conscious jurisdictions. Welcome. Hi all, thanks again for once more being with me and supporting this podcast by listening in. Our topic today is on the law enforcement interview and how and why it can be improved using evidence-based rapport-building interviewing techniques over other techniques. The origin of both the Shaft technique and Moran's approach will be explained. We shall mention some cases in which they, or similar, have been used, including two Canadian cases. Finally, we shall see in what context and within which framework they could be rolled out within other jurisdictions. Intelligence, the organization, the process, and the product is required by law enforcement to better execute enforcement of criminal, regulatory, and other laws, and detection, apprehension, prosecution, disruption, and deterrence of criminality. Intelligence as an organization, primarily through a number of means, gathers and processes raw data on indicators. This is then used to provide timely and actionable early warnings regarding a number of desirable and undesirable scenarios which affect policy and operation. In the criminal justice system, the raw data would be the who, the why, the what, the where, the when and the how of illegal activity, both criminal and regulatory. These are the five W's and the H. This would include both tactical and strategic data for use in the field, responding to daily crime and for taking a wider policy and planning overview. Intelligence as an organization may comprise several disparate autonomous units, although there need be a degree of interconnectivity and information sharing amongst them for greater effectiveness. The units need be distributed across the spectrum of the criminal justice system within agencies such as the police, prison services, tax and revenue collection, consumer protection and trading standards, immigration and border patrol, customs and excise, and other such agencies. Intelligence as a process has already been outlined as answering the five W's and H of illegal activity. However, it can further be said that intelligence is carried out following a collection plan as part of an intelligence cycle comprising collection, classification, collation, analysis, interpretation and dissemination according to an identified and tasked priority intelligence requirement. Intelligence as a product 
would be the raw, raw data analyzed, evaluated, and graded. The ad hoc and routine written reports, the associ association matrices, link analysis event timeline, comparative case, crime hotspot, commodity flow, geolocation, case analysis, and telephone analysis charts, and the formal and impromptu oral briefings disseminated. Assumptions considered, hypotheses developed, inferences drawn, and analysis contained within the earlier mentioned products. Such analysis would include patterns, serials, trends, threats, and vulnerabilities. All the proceeding drive the direction of law enforcement in general, but also investigations in particular, and can be used to provide summary and demonstrative evidence in prosecution. Prosecution can best be defined as where a prosecuting authority attempts to demonstrate beyond a reasonable doubt the commission of the key elements of an offence by an accused, which accused having had the relevant frame of mind or the relevant circumstances having been in existence at the time. This demonstration would be based on evidence presented, meaning that no successful prosecution can be executed without such evidence. Accordingly, the purpose of a criminal investigation is to determine, unearth, and present evidence of commission of a criminal offence, although at times regulatory offences are also considered. A criminal investigation can still be successfully concluded, despite no evidence having been unearthed at its conclusion. Think of the circumstances where a spurious allegation of criminality is made, for example rape, and the subsequent investigation results not only in no evidence being unearthed, but in no charges being brought, and the suspect being exonerated. This too is a triumph for that criminal justice system. However, other than the circumstances just mentioned, for any criminal or regulatory prosecution to be successful, a conviction must generally be obtained. This means that sufficient, relevant, compelling and admissible evidence must be provided in the course of that prosecution. Such evidence would have been gathered in the course of a criminal or regulatory investigation or unearthed during the prosecution proceedings. Intelligence interviewing maps out both past events following precise requirements and future intentions, plans and upcoming events. Investigative interviewing, however, has an altogether different dual purpose. The dual purpose of investigative interviewing is to provide direction for further investigation and primarily draw from a victim, witness or suspect information relevant to a criminal or regulatory offence committed in the past or intended to be committed in the future. In short, evidence. A 2010 report from the United States National Institute of Justice the role and impact of forensic evidence in the criminal justice process indicates that certainly for the United States and probably for elsewhere too, physical evidence was available at most crime scenes but little scientific evidence was collected and had minimal impact on case outcomes. In that report it was noted that at least in 1969 physical evidence was available in 90% of the crime scenes attended but only 1% of that available evidence was ever collected or analysed. In an interesting 2010 article, The Case Against Evidence in the Boston Globe, a compelling argument was made regarding the futility of physical or scientific evidence anyway. Taking homicide, assault, burglary or robbery as the benchmarks, due to the seriousness of consequences for both victims and suspects, and quoting from that article and referring to a 
Summers and Baskin study of 400 murder cases in five jurisdictions. Only 13.5% of the homicide cases had physical evidence linking the suspect to the crime scene or victim, whilst forensic evidence was only collected in a third of the cases. Somers and Baskin continued to say of those 400 homicide cases, prosecutions were more likely to be instituted based not on availability of forensic evidence, but on the presence of witnesses or known connections between victim and suspect with forensic evidence, not a significant factor. Regarding how the situation could be remedied, Somers and Baskin provided an unexpected but reasonable suggestion. Police should spend more time out in the community before a homicide happens, making connections with everyday people, especially in high-crime neighbourhoods, so that when a dead body turns up on a street corner, investigators have a better chance of getting witnesses to come forward. In short, Summers and Baskin appear to be suggesting that the better establishment of rapport with community members in advance of crime would tend to increase the chances of witnesses coming forwards or connections being identified. This is a very human, intelligence-centric practice. Borrowing from military tactical doctrine, the best way to gain intelligence is through human intelligence derived from contact between locals. The intelligence gaining process goes hand in hand with persistent security presence. People may approach soldiers and marines during the course of their day-to-day -day operations and offer information. Key to these interactions is that counterinsurgents are able to build strong relationships with locals, treating them with respect and slowly building trusted networks from which to glean intelligence. Importantly, intelligence and relationship building can only come from face-to-face -face interactions. Soldiers must dismount from their armoured vehicles and talk to people. This comes from death before dismount, mechanization, force employment and counterinsurgency outcomes in Iraq. The same theory that applies to counterinsurgency and military force protection can surely be applied to civilian policing of populations noting their exhaustion to treat the locals with respect and slowly building trusted networks. It is also worth noting that while the law enforcement interviews conducted in a formal custodial setting, the intelligence interaction can occur as a casual conversation, for example in a bar, and that law enforcement interview is typically relatively short, while the intelligence interview may take place on a more or less regular basis over the course of several years. Thus, the longer-term relationship between interviewer and source plays a more central role in intelligence gathering. Sometimes in a criminal investigation, a witness can progressively fall under suspicion and become a suspect themselves, as was the case in Uganda with Shamim Masembe. Someone initially under suspicion as a suspect can also prove to be innocent and most likely a very crucial eyewitness to events, just like the supergrass Joey O'Brien in an Irish murder case. On the odd occasion, even a perceived victim can later be unearthed as a suspect, exactly like in the American cases variously involving Edward Garnett, Jesse Smollett and Michelle Diaz. Looking to the United States again, conversely, a suspect can similarly be found out to actually be a victim, just like Michelle Susan Hadley in the Craigslist rape fantasy case. Due to the potential for change of an interview status as an investigation progresses, 
interviewees need to be handled sensitively. Apart from general professionalism, this requirement is so that victims and witnesses neither have any unnecessary details regarding suspects divulged to them, nor fail to have any external details of the case absorbed by them through the media, overhearing other witnesses, or through first contact with law enforcement, noted to better contextualize any bias or distortion that might present in their account. For these reasons, guard need be kept as to how much detail regarding a suspect both victims and witnesses are to receive. Witnesses must as far as possible be cocooned from other witnesses, both physically, when going to be interviewed and in terms of scheduling. Suspects similarly need only be provided with as little information as required about victims and witnesses prior to being charged. These precautions allow for unadulterated, undistorted, unguarded and clear statements to be made under caution regarding the alleged crime and purely from their perspective to be obtained from them. Once charged, insofar as required for them to prepare the defence and in keeping with any requirements regarding witness security or protection appropriate, greater details can be disclosed during the legal discovery process. The principle behind this approach is similar to that in the practice of counterintelligence. Learn all you can about your adversary and what they know, whilst divulging as little or nothing about you and what you know. Remember, the more you stare at the abyss, the more the abyss stares at you. However, interviewees from all three groups are best treated with respect for best results. None must be uncomfortable through their physical environment during interviewing. This helps assure as full and unguarded response in the second round of questioning as possible, the interview stage. There is no bar, though, in making suspects uncomfortable with the type or direction of questioning in subsequent interrogation, as they are confronted with the inconsistencies in their narrative or account and inculpatory evidence. Under PEACE methodology, enhanced cognitive interview and free recall or open-ended prompt questioning methods are used for witnesses and victim interviews, while conversation management is applied to suspect interviews. Both cognitive interviewing and free recall methodology are believed to enhance memory recall. Cognitive interviewing relies on four instructions being given to the interviewee, namely, return to the environmental and emotional context of the crime scene, mentally reinstate the context of the crime. Recall as much as possible of the details, smells, colours, textures and atmosphere, including even what might appear trivial or irrelevant. Play with timelines. Look at what happened going forwards from one point, then go backwards from another. Ask for the narrative to be started at several points. Tell the narrative with several different elements as the object of recall, for example, the knife, the cat, the second attacker and so on. Free recall or open-ended prompt questions should be posed early in the interview process. This allows the interviewee to give an unlimited narrative account in their own words. This is important because the interviewee is allowed to define what they felt was significant or noteworthy. They give their own descriptions which determines the value they place on that object and they control the initial order of the narrative. Examples of free recall or open-ended prompt questions would include What can you tell me about the car? What can you tell me about the perpetrator? In your own words, tell me what happened. 
Please tell me everything you know about the fire in your warehouse. Please tell me everything that happened to you after school last Friday night. Please tell me everything about the accident you witnessed. Please tell me everything you did from noon on Friday until you went to bed. Active listening on the part of the interviewer is a companion to the free recall or open-ended question prompt. Through active listening, the skilled interviewer plots a course to close-ended or unfocused questions they shall ask to augment the free recall questions. These should elicit more detail from the account. Examples of such close-ended questions are Did the attacker have a beard? What colour was the car? Whilst examples of the focused question would include where were you last Friday at 7.45? Focused questions like these are a hallmark of the read technique. The PEACE methodology presupposes that the interviewer is open-minded and sticks to a standardized procedure in the course of the interview. This avoids the interview steering in a direction that tends to confirm any biases held or results in intentional or unintentional coercion of the interviewee such that an untruthful false confession results. The standardization within the interview is that the interviews are put at ease as far as is possible, rapport is established and maintained, witnesses are encouraged to be active throughout the interview, interviewers ask free recall or open-ended prompt questions, interviewees are encouraged to take a trip down memory lane and mentally recreate the course of events, close-ended and focused questions are asked to clarify points and enrich the narrative provided, Notes and other materials are reviewed. Witnesses are requested to add any other details they might have. The interview is closed off. Notes are concluded and read back to the interviewees. Any amendments are made and comments noted. Witness statements are signed and dated. And finally, the interviews are terminated. Law enforcement officers in most jurisdictions are expected to, from time to time, give evidence in cases that they investigate. Consequently, they should be trained in preparing their own witness statements. It is this knowledge as well as the knowledge of what questions to ask that go into preparing witness statements for victims and other prosecution witnesses. Typically, a performer format is utilised, form MG11 in the United Kingdom, and this helps more easily turn handwritten responses given at the interview into a witness statement. Such statements should be handwritten or typed and capable of signature and dating by interviewees upon interview termination or shortly after. In the read technique, evidence is presented up front to interviewees. If the evidence is, objectively viewed, sufficiently strong, this tends to suggest interviewee guilt. Such suggestion can also have a subjective effect in the interviewer's mind, convincing them to of the interviewee's culpability. A bias is formed. On this undesirable basis, the interview continues with the interviewer purposely negating the moral seriousness of the crime. An example of this would be making statements or observations such as, it's not like she was never going to have sex. The interview then proceeds to provide the interviewee an out, an exculpatory contextual excuse regarding their conduct by making further statements or observations along the lines of maybe she led you on and looking the way she does how could you know she was underage at this stage any interviewee protestations of innocence or denial of culpability are immediately shut down to the point of utility any attempts by the interview to explain away their conduct are met with direct accusations of guilt 
like someone slept with her and you were the only one there. Once the interviewee per perceives it as useless to object further, the interviewer assumes a posture of understanding and sympathy, further breaking down the interviewee's resolve in denying the crime. The interviewer now introduces two alternatives as to the interviewee involvement with the crime, both incriminating but one less morally reprehensible. This is done through statements or observations such as, look, there are only two of you in that room. Either you slept with this underage girl knowing her age and not caring, which is one thing, or because of how she was dressed, you slept with her believing she was of age, and because of how she acted towards you, her willingness, which is something else, which is it? Interviewers are encouraged to make their choice, and once that is done verbally, it is swiftly put into writing and signed and dated. Voila, Stefan Kitsko all over again. Criticism of the read technique arises through analyses such as these. The suitability of the read technique for use with victims and witnesses arises from its confrontational methodology. How will this method ever result in further willing cooperation from traumatized victims or witnesses who have voluntarily come forward? This critique of read made clearly better results are unlikely to emerge from using something stronger. Besides, Mendes is against that. Juan Mendes was a United Nations Special Rapporteur on Torture and a past victim of torture himself. Because prohibiting torture legally was not lessening the practice, which was simply becoming normalized, Juan Mendes was given a brief to see how this could be arrested, and the result was the Principles on Effective Interviewing for Investigation and Information Gathering, or the Mendes Principles. These principles were a result of comprehensive, expert-driven, empirical, interdisciplinary, consultative studies that held coercive interrogations to be counterproductive and that torture did not work. These principles suggest that prevention of torture and coercive techniques by all with the power to detain and question through a universal doctrinal paradigm shift in intelligence and investigation. This would be from confessions obtained in information gathering to rapport-based interviews. Being interviewed by law enforcement can be likened to visiting the dentist. There are a lot of parallels there. Both law enforcement and dentists claim to be working for the betterment of people. No one generally wants to go to either. Visiting either is usually preceded by feelings of dread and expectations of discomfort, if not pain or worse. However, a dentist may warmly greet you, sit you down in a comfortable chair, and make light, interesting conversation. Such dentists could then go on to detail the forthcoming procedure, explaining that whilst it may hurt, they will ensure that such pain is mild, and you will definitely be left feeling better in the end. Such approach has a greater likelihood of lessening your dread, reducing trepidations, increasing your confidence in the whole process, and leaving you overall more cooperative with and accepting of directives given. This, in essence, is exactly what law enforcement and other interviews should seek to do. Just as a dentist is after removing an unhealthy tooth and relieving you from a burdensome situation, the cause of your discomfort and the source of health danger to you, so does law enforcement seek to extricate you from your current predicament, placing victims at ease, witnesses in protection, and suspects in safe custody. In much the same way dentists strive for your comfort and ease as a necessary precursor to the work, so too should law enforcement. The Mendes principles seek this endpoint too, and intend that interview cooperation be gained 
through application of practical guidance for non-coercive interrogations, the address of interviewee vulnerabilities in custody, and provision of specific guidance and training, accountability, and implementation, all being in line with legal and procedural safeguards. Similar to the dental manner described above, in the field of wartime interrogation, Hans-Joachim Schaaf, a German Air Force interrogator of captured Allied airmen, became known for his friendly and conversational approach, and who, in accordance with the rapport building and the friendly approach, engineered an atmosphere in which the source feels relaxed and comfortable, creating a relationship between the interviewer and source where a positive relationship is considered critical for motivating the source's cooperation and where trust was built, importantly, in order to achieve cooperation, not just compliance. Additionally, under this technique, technique, trust is even more important for achieving cooperation when there is a relatively high degree of conflicting interests and trustworthiness is predicted by the display of positive traits such as ability, for example, knowing your source and topic, benevolence, for example, seeing the source rather than the illegal activity, and integrity, for example, being clear on rights and regulations, even if negative. Further, in order to establish a friendly atmosphere in an interview context, importance is placed on expressing understanding for the source's situation, displaying acceptance, and adopting adaptive interpersonal behavior. Whilst not explicitly defined as an example of the shaft technique, the 10-hour Canadian police interview of Colonel Russell Williams on murder, rape, and burglary charges is an exceptional example of how a motivational interview, which the shaft technique certainly is, can operate. While segments of the Williams interview are in the public domain and available to view, Ontario Provisional Police Detective Sergeant Jim Smith was constrained by official directive from speaking about the context of that interview. Was, however, in the course of a subsequent similarly successful police station interview of Terry Lynn McClintic about her involvement in death, Smith was able to say of this technique, in a nutshell, an interview is fact gathering, asking somebody to tell you their version of events, tell you their story, and you try and sit back and allow them to do that without challenging them or interrupting them. An interrogation is when we decide to confront somebody on the facts that we believe, believe that they may be responsible for something and challenge them on the information we have and maybe at that point decide to put evidence to them, show them what we know about the investigation and to encourage them to essentially tell us the truth if they've been holding back. The shaft technique is not the only rapport-based in investigative interviewing technique credited with phenomenal success. Another wartime technique set up by Sherwood F. Moran, the United States Marine Corps, is also similarly well regarded. Such technique used in field intelligence gathering was detailed in a United States Marine Corps memo which held, amongst other things, that an interviewer must be himself. He should not and cannot try to copy or imitate somebody else. He should be open to suggestions and should be a student of the best methods, but his work will be based primarily upon his own character, his own experience, and his own temperament. I often tell a prisoner right at the start what my attitude is, telling them I'm talking as a human being to a human being, and they respond to this. One must be absolutely sincere. I mean that one must not assume the above attitudes in order to gain the prisoner's confidence and get him to talk. He will know the difference. 
You must get him to know by the expression of your face, the glance of your eye, the tone of your voice. An interviewer should be a man of culture, insight, resourcefulness and with real conversational ability. He must have gags, he must have a line, he must be alive, he must be warm, he must be vivid. But above all, he must have integrity, sympathy. Yet he must be firm and wise. He must have dignity and a proper sense of values, but withal, friendly, open and frank. Two characteristics I have not specifically mentioned, patience and tact. I might sum it all by saying that a man should have sympathetic common sense. Now in regard to the use of the language, often it is not advisable to get right down to business with the prisoner at the start. I seldom do. To begin right away in a business-like and statistical way is to ask him his name, age, etc. and then pump him for military information. This is neither good psychology nor very interesting for him or for you. Begin by asking him things about himself. Make him and his troubles the center of the stage, not you and your questions. You can ask if he's had cigarettes, if he's being treated all right, etc. If he's wounded, you have a rare chance. Begin to talk about his wounds. Ask if the doctor has attended to him. Have him show you his wounds or burns. He appreciated my genuine sympathy and desire to have him fundamentally made comfortable. He was most affable and friendly, though very sad at having been taken prisoner. A score of illustrations such as the preceding could be cited. However, all this is of course preliminary. But even later on, when you have started on questioning him for strictly war information, it is well not to be too systematic. Wander off into delightful channels of things of interest to him and to you. But when I say it's not well to be too systematic, I mean in the outward approach and presentation from a conversational standpoint. But in the workings of your mind, you must be a model of a system. You must know exactly what information you want and come back to it repeatedly. Don't let your warm human interest, your genuine interest in the prisoner, cause you to be sidetracked by him. You should be hard-boiled, but not half-baked. Deep human sympathy can go with a business-like, systematic and ruthlessly persistent approach. Of course, there is always the danger that some types will take advantage of your friendliness. What is one to do with a prisoner who recognizes your friendliness and really appreciates it, yet won't give military information? There is something that can be done about that. In the case of a salesman selling goods from door to door, the emphatic no of the lady to whom he is trying to sell stockings, aluminium ware or whatnot, should not be the end of the conversation, but the beginning. The shaft technique in Moran's approach is certainly of great utility when dealing with victims and witnesses due to the respectful, mindful and relaxed elicitation nature. The technique set up by Detective Sergeant Jim Smith which transitions from interviewing, which is fact-gathering, where you are asking somebody to tell you their version of events, tell you their story, and we try to sit back and allow them to do that without challenging them or interrupting them, to interrogation, where we decide to confront someone on the facts that we believe that they may be responsible for something and challenge them on the information we have and maybe at that point decide to put evidence to them to show them what we know about the investigation and to encourage them to essentially tell us the truth if they've been holding back is well worth noting as one which firstly gathers all information that can be gathered 
and then seeks out explanations for inconsistencies. This version is not only of more utility with suspects, but also with victims or witnesses whose accounts are doubtful after the initial interviews. Placing the interview at ease in all techniques and treating them with respect is universal to victims, witnesses and suspects. Utilizing the techniques set up as described across both intelligence gathering interviews, investigative interviews and the interrogation phase of law enforcement interviews constitutes the shift away from confession-orientated information gathering to rapport-based information gathering that the Mendes principles demand. This has been a podcast hosted by me, Emmanuel James Ateng, on behalf of the Association of Crime and Intelligence Analysts and Law Enforcement Analysts Podcasts on the comparative benefits of rapport and evidence-based intelligence and investigative interviewing, its suitability for adoption across cash-conscious jurisdictions, and aspects of rollout with particular emphasis on India and Uganda. Again, we hope this podcast has engaged, entertained, and educated in equal measure. I look forward to continuing this series of podcasts, and I now must rush off to prepare to intercept an old man and some reindeers whom I know are planning to surreptitiously enter my home. Until the next podcast, thank you one, thank you all, and Merry Christmas. Lots of lonely police officers just looking for that one special person to chat to. Thank you.